0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I hope you've had an awesome week. And for those of you that listened to last week's show, why I went paleo, and have messaged me or have just responded to my, I guess you could say, increase of paleo traffic on my Instagram account over the last week. Thank you very much. It really is that simple. Eat good food and you'll feel really good. Anyway, that was last week's show. If you haven't listened to it, please go and have a listen. It's not super long. This week, we flip the topic again. We go to something completely different, and this guy is probably one of the most intelligent people I've spoken to, so I do my best. I really research this show a lot. I research all my shows, but I researched this one a lot because I knew I was speaking to someone who was incredibly intelligent, we are talking all about a global health diplomacy. Aditya Mitha has set out. He is a PhD researcher at the University of Leeds. And he is there for the next three years studying the effectiveness of global health diplomacy in alleviating political conflict in the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. Yes, it's absolutely nuts. Fun fact about him before we get into the serious stuff, though, is he's also the host of a cricket podcast. Super interesting guy. I loved it. It was really, really interesting. It's a little bit different from what I normally do, but Aditya is a cool guy and really opened my eyes and hopefully will open your eyes and ears to what's going on out there and to some of his work. This is episode... The 793 Inner Fight podcast: Global Health Diplomacy with Aditya Meter. No matter where you are in the world, thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the show, Aditya. Welcome from Leeds to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you
1: for having me. I'm very happy to be here and chatting to you. Uh, I've heard a lot about Inner fight and um, being passionate about physical fitness myself. Uh, Now, I'm very happy to be here.
0: Well, I'm sure from what we've been speaking about before we pressed record, mate, we're going to have one hell of a conversation. Kick us off why you're a PhD researcher at the University of Leeds. What are you doing there? How did you get there? And what's the objective?
1: So I'm studying at the intersection of conflict and, and global health. And... Uh, my topic is um, examining the effectiveness of global health diplomacy in reducing political conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And Amazing. to to elaborate on that a little bit, um, global health diplomacy is is fast gaining traction in foreign policies across the world because. In a lot of countries that have infectious disease outbreaks for example the drc has had, has had a number of ebola outbreaks most recently in in 2018. in fact if you've been reading the news uganda had an ebola outbreak not so long ago as well and right. if these countries have ebola outbreaks there is the risk of that's spreading to neighboring countries as well and potentially across the world you know we've just seen that with covid so it is in everybody's best interest if if that outbreak is contained and one way to do that is to is to incorporate global health in foreign policy and we think that this is a recent phenomena but it's actually yeah. not you know a lot of this is it it goes back to uh, the eighteen fifties. You know, eighteen fifty one was the first uh, sanitary conference where a lot of um, at the time a lot of the uh, a lot of countries that had colonies, you know, in tropical countries of Asia and and Africa, they were battling yellow fever and and the plague, and uh, so a lot of European countries essentially met, sat around the table, and tried to figure out how to um, alleviate these problems. So Mm. to be honest, if we think about when global health diplomacy started, it started way back. It's just that it wasn't called global health diplomacy at the time. And it wasn't even called globalization at the time.
0: Well, I mean, it's probably... After we connected on Instagram and I saw the title, I started Googling stuff and I started sort of finding out different bits and pieces and going down various sort of rabbit holes with it, mate. But it's something, like you said, it's been in place for a while, but I I imagine of listeners to the show, like maybe 10 or 20%, like it makes sense, but only 10 or 20% of the listeners would have ever heard of something like this so why why is it somehow kept I, I guess quiet?
1: You know, I, I think a lot of it depends on how individuals view the world, right? So to me, in in my research, the one question that my supervisors often ask me, and I've to this point, I've submitted about three three different drafts of of my research proposal and the one question that they always ask me to focus on is how do you define development mm. and i think globally it's it's not a it's not a good or bad thing it's just that i think globally we tend to view progress as economic like primarily economic you know but there are there's a whole host of other issues that that you know the economy cannot really solve so, for example, you can have you know you can have like a hundred billionaires in a country, but if if you don't have the hospitals to treat patients mm-hmm. or the schools to educate individuals over a period of time, that money is not really trickling down. Yes, so I think a lot of it depends on how you view the world, and to me, I think it's important to have that that well-rounded holistic appreciation of what development encompasses. So if a country is doing well economically, that is great. And, Mm. um, you know, long may that continue, but Mm. at the same time, it also means that there needs to be a consistent investment in education, in health, in infrastructure, because these things matter.
0: Absolutely. Mate. You're just about to spend, or you've just started in in September, a three-year stay in the beautiful city of sunny Leeds, where I also fortunately spent three years studying. I wanted to maybe give us a bit of background of, like, people are probably thinking, wow, this is an amazing topic. How does someone get to the point that you're currently at?
1: So actually, yeah, so my my road has been... um my road is has is, is been rather strange it's off the beaten track I suppose because when I started <laughs> off I was an undergrad at Emory University where I studied sociology and religion and during that time I spent about two months in Kenya with uh, the Harvard summer school where uh, basically trying to we were trying to design an intervention in a six-week period so at that point that was my first exposure to field work i suppose right. in 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 low resource setting and uh, i was fascinated i felt like i really wanted to do this so my next degree then was in global health from duke university and i conducted research in south africa and ghana at that point uh, so then i wanted more of it and that's why i got interested in, in policy and i've always been I've always been um, a humanities student. I've always studied history and politics, and right. I felt like there was that confluence of of history and politics in in the work that I wanted to do. Uh, so then I ended up in India, in uh, in a part of Rajasthan called Jhalawar, where I spent a year, and um, through the course of that year, I worked with the health workers of a number of villages. Um, and trying to roll out an app that would help them better monitor high-risk pregnant ladies children and uh, and so on and after that I had what was pretty much my dream job which was in in Hargeza Somaliland and I was conducting research in conflict and conflict gender education uh, health and so on so a lot of my projects were in south central somalia which is an active conflict zone like large swathes of territory in somalia are occupied by al-shabaab and um, i was also doing a little bit of research in somali land so yeah and then covid hit of course so
0: so I, I was gonna I was gonna ask you what part of Leeds you, you you live in, mate, to see how safe you were. But having lived in those places, Leeds is <laughs> is like paradise for you. Mate. I mean, yeah. it's it's I I have all these questions bouncing around in my mind. I have a load written down, and as you speak, mate, I have a load more things coming into my head. But what I'm thinking right now is, like, like for example, I, 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 I like it to my scenario where. I enjoy what I do and I found a passion in, in helping people. Would you say it's your passion to, to be in these situations, doing research and figuring you, figuring things out, I guess. Uh, Yes. Well, I, I suppose, you know, it, it comes from,
1: it comes from an inherent passion for, for history and, Politics and and global health, and I've I've always been drawn to, to sort of you know emergency health scenarios, you know right. where there's that urgent need, and I think a lot of it also stems from from the fact that you know in research we're always trying to we always want to be part of groundbreaking research, right? Like what is that glory idea that's yeah. that's going to tell the world that I've arrived. Right. But the truth of the matter is that a lot of those glory ideas are actually really simple ideas that we we never really reflect a whole lot on. So, for example, the the installation of streetlights. Think of the installation of streetlights and what that could mean for a whole host of different communities, because. You install streetlights, it means that people can work for longer, businesses can earn more money, which means that families will get more disposable income that could be used for nutrition, which could be used for education. It reduces crime and the likelihood of an individual being almost succumbing to to terrorism as a last resort reduces. And you think of the intervention. It's been there for, like, streetlights have been there for years. Yeah. But as a development intervention, it is crucial. It is vitally important. And there are so many case studies across the world which will illustrate the effectiveness of streetlights in improving the lives of people. I've done projects like that myself.
0: That's unreal. Mate, it, it's so funny because I I lived in Dubai for a long time and I absolutely love it here. But one of the things I absolutely hate about Dubai is the amount of light pollution due to the amount of (laughs) streetlights. But now you're telling me all the positives, but I'm, I mean, I, I I agree with all the positives, mate, but I'm like, guys, like they put streetlights here at like 25 meter intervals, you know, and instead of like one bulb, 50 bulbs in, in, in one lamppost. So, but it is, that's, I mean, that is an incredible example of like you said, some of the simpler things that can be done within society that have, a huge uh i i I guess a a huge impact in so many different areas
1: absolutely and it's like we always say right you look at you look at safety guidelines across the world Hmm. you know what what would safety guidelines say to you that avoid walking on poorly on poorly lit roads at night yeah they say that right yeah but you know there's it has it has so much of a benefit for economies, for women, for safety, and for business. And I think it's in in the global north, in the developed world. I suppose they it's almost taken for granted. But you know, you you think about Nick one of the most famous case studies is from the Kibera slum in uh, in Nairobi, right? Uh, and um, it was it was tested there as well so there's there's all this literature on on um, the benefits of of street lighting
0: in these areas and it works it's incredible so going we understand how you've got here there's i'm fascinated by your work no wonder you're, you're interested in it. And I'm, I'm just a fitness guy, so I'm sure a lot of people are sort of thinking right now, wow. So now that you're here in Leeds, you set out, how did you come up with, do you, do you follow a title or did you come up with the title of like studying the effectiveness of global health disp- diplomacy and leaving? like, do you come up with that yourself or is that somehow, how does it work?
1: Oh well, uh, in in order to be in a PhD program, you have to, you have to have a topic that, that is, sort of specific, narrow, and uh, I guess achievable, and it right. it adds to it adds to the debate, right? So what's what happens with conflict in global health is that generally, most of the empirical data is on how conflict affects health outcomes. Right. So whether that's conflicts effects on mental health or um, you know, specific conditions like HIV, for example. You know, that's it's a massive issue in in conflict areas. So what I wanted to do was I want to flip the debate. We know that conflict affects health outcomes.
0: Hmm.
1: Can we try to determine whether global health diplomacy, that is interventions that are conducted in a conflict area, hmm. can that potentially reduce conflict? Right. So I wanted to flip the argument because there is, hmm. there are some examples of it. So in 1995, uh, in 1995, there was a four-month ceasefire that was brokered in in Sudan, and um, which was experiencing this this terrible violence at the time, and um, it was essentially a global health intervention that that brokered that ceasefire. You know, similarly, in um, in Nigeria, it it took a lot of effort to uh, it took a lot of effort to uh, administer um the the drops in in northern nigeria which which we know has has unfortunately uh, been ravaged by an insurgency, so it happens you know there is a lot of health diplomacy it does take place in conflict areas and it does temporarily uh, pause conflict but I think the question is how long does it how long is it uh, stopping conflict for and um, you know is can we can we gather data to be able to measure the efficacy of it i think that's the larger question because up until this point we don't have empirical data to to demonstrate the efficacy
0: so that was that's a question i actually have written down how do you for what you're trying to achieve. You're sat leads. How do you go out and do your research? How do you get the data?
1: Yeah. So typically you have to go out into the field, you know, so you have to determine where you can, you can go and you need to, I guess in my case, I'm leaning towards a qualitative study where I'd interview about 50 to 60 respondents in And ideally, you'd want to capture a wide cross-section of of society, you know, so whether that's policymakers, uh, civil society organizations, you know, NGO workers, uh, you know, the public on the ground that's affected by conflict. So you want a holistic, well-rounded perspective, and uh,
0: that's that's how you gather your data. Uh, It's... So you're, you're sat there trying to, trying to figure out where to get these people from right now, I guess.
1: So you generally have to, you generally have to partner with an organization there, you know, so yeah. at the PhD level, uh, you do have to, um, you know, in, for the most part, if, if, if there is a host university that can help you with that, that's great. But oftentimes in conflict areas, that's not always possible. So... Mm-hmm. I need to see how how we can do it logistically and uh, yeah, so I'm in that process now actually it's it's quite complicated
0: <laughs> and what's what's it looking like when's your when's your first visit to to the Congo
1: i I don't know uh, I don't know just yet because right. uh, I have to so again, you have to fill out an ethics application. you know you have to go through an ethical review process right. because you know, there are certain principles with research such as, you know, you don't want to do harm and uh, you know, you, there is an informed consent process. So you have to have all of that lined up correctly and the university has to be convinced Uh, only then will they sign off on it. But um, at the moment I'm trying to determine all of these various moving parts and the DRC again, it's a, uh, it's a fluid security situation, right? So yeah. you know you have to take that into consideration as well because yeah, uh, yeah things can move pretty quickly out there
0: <laughs> how did you how did you choose the, the republic of congo
1: mainly because
0: um it has there are multiple
1: drivers of conflict in in the drc and right. um it's and, and unfortunately it's it It's just uh, witnessed violence for 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 decades, really. You know, and um, it, to me, I think coming from India, we' we're, we're a little bit um, I don't want to say we're isolated from that conflict, but I guess it's one way of sort of bringing that back to my community and communicating it to to my people back home. so that's that's important to me as well. And um, yeah i think uh, the drc has always been it's been a fascinating country you know because you look at the you you look at the the drivers of conflict um, the politics of the country and um, you know neighboring interest in the drc all of these things can uh, make for for quite an interesting case study
0: what what have you found so far? You've obviously done a lot of sort of back research before coming to to, to where we're at today. Can you share some of the things that that you found that will continue to blow me away and make this show awesome, mate? <laughs>
1: um, uh, let me think. Okay, so I mean, one thing I can tell you just from from reading that I've done um, recently is that. Um, is that a lot of in in these in politically fragile contexts such as the DRC, you know there there are organizations that provide medical service, but they are actively involved in containing the conflict. Right. You know, by by actively involved, I mean they're not like they're not going to hold weapons, but they're essentially mediating yeah. because you know there is there is a mutual benefit there. So one thing that um so one thing that is that is common as i mentioned earlier in the show is that is that hiv is is a massive issue in um in um, fragile con- in fragile context because um you know sexual violence unfortunately is rampant in 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 the drc and um, right. the various rebel groups um, have been guilty of um of perpetrating this violence, so typically in in these contexts, rebel groups do have um, high rates of of HIV infection, and uh, that that tends to spread within the community as well. And with that comes um, quite a lot of um, stigma, you know, and That's and true. survivors of this sort of violence. Um, they find it very difficult to 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 uh, uh, I guess to maintain their connections in the community because they're often ostracized. And I think if there's one thing that's yeah. that's really brutal is um, it's something called um, the fistula, you know, which which is often damaged. It's the it's the wall between um, between the vagina and the anus, and um, yeah. you know, often um a lot of sexual violence it leads to the damage of the fistula and mm-hmm. women are often they experience incontinence yeah you know for, for the rest of their lives so wow. that's that's hard but i think on the flip side there's also a lot of great work being done by medical professionals in the drc to mm-hmm. to repair fistulas and to help patients Wow. So, Doctor Dennis Mukwege, for example, is is um is I guess he's he's among the bravest men in the DRC because he does this work on a daily basis from his hospital in Bukavu.
0: Amazing, I mean, it's it it's quite a crazy place, isn't it? It's got almost a hundred million population. It borders. borders rwanda and it actually had a lot of sort of spillover from from the the genocide in in rwanda right
1: yes yes um so yeah it actually it actually borders a lot of different countries yeah you know and it's massive i think the drc is is um it's about I think it's in Germany, France, and the Netherlands combined. It's that big. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there was there was a fair bit of um, so that yeah so that border, for example, I think there's there a lot of crossovers back in the day during the genocide. Um, a lot of um, Rwandans they sort of tried to they were they tried to cross the border into the DRC, and now, at this point, with all the bad, so there is, there are refugee camps along the border of um, the TRC and Rwanda, and at this point, um, and there are hundreds of thousands of people there. Pretty I mean, much that's, in no that's
0: one of its sort of disadvantages of its of its size, and the number of countries that border it is their health problems and their conflict issues can obviously spill spill over as perhaps people from those neighboring countries try and rush in for for a little bit of a little bit of safety but bring bring with it in in this case a lot of or potentially a lot of health issues
1: yeah yeah that that certainly happens but i think ultimately you know a lot of a lot of this is down to it's down to governance and there has to be I think there has to be some sort of global interest in in trying to alleviate that conflict because it's it's happened for far too long, you know, and there have been efforts to to sort of mediate, but um, they haven't quite worked because I think international politics is complicated, right? You know mm-hmm. it's it's almost like every group that's fighting might have valid reasons to fight but then they're also guilty of perpetrating heinous crimes what do you do then what's the outcome of that sort of situation it's complicated right because then we, we can't just take a, a right or wrong sort of sort of approach to this it's not that black and white at all
0: and i i guess sometimes politically some some policy Plays almost a numbers game where they're where they're trying to favour a, a large percent of the population, and that that could be seventy or eighty percent of the population. It will help, but in a country, I mean, in Africa as a continent has one point three billion people on it. You know, and if we look at if, if we look at Congo, as we said, we've got a, a, a hundred million. So if we're only playing into the hands of seventy percent, we we have thirty million people that we're actually putting at risk in some way, shape or form because of, of political policy.
1: Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, I was, I was reading about um, an organization called Heal Africa. Right. Operates in, in the and, um, and the one, so in, in these contexts, maintaining neutrality is very important in order to do any sort of, any sort of health intervention. It's very important to demonstrate neutrality political right. neutrality and um, i was very impressed that there was a concerted effort to to recruit individuals from a wide variety of ethnic groups so that at no point can it ever even be suggested that that the organization is favoring one ethnic group over the other because wow. that's simply not the case it's not possible
0: right that's and cool. again, I think
1: that makes in in the world generally. I think countries struggle to to manage diversity. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You know, politically, it's it's very hard, right, to have a homogenous society. You know, where everyone belongs to the same ethnic group, that's that's easier to manage, but. That's not always the case. And certainly, in this era of globalization, you know, where social media is is an integral part of all of our lives. And it doesn't it doesn't take you don't need to be factual. You only need to you you only need to sow that seed of doubt mm. right, for people to start talking, yeah, so yeah. you know in in this in the twenty first century that we live in, Life is complicated, and some of yeah. these issues uh, are are important to address because if we don't, then that could potentially lead to loss of life
0: yeah it's interesting what you say about about that and about I guess access to varying opinions, stroke research that's maybe not research, and the way that the communication in Africa has essentially missed a whole link in that it's gone from being quite a could we say like insular country with a number of the population not having any real access to telephones, to televisions, or to any form of the outside world. They've skipped straight to 3G, 4G, and 5G communication, which has given them access to absolutely everything. So they've gone literally from zero to 100 super fast. And now, so they've gone from the opinion of maybe the leaders of the village to a global influx of information and opinion literally within i mean some could argue 5 to 10 years really
1: yeah and i think the whole the whole world is grappling with that right because yeah, yeah. you know because we don't know what to do with it it's yeah it it's um, like i can tell you from in in india the indian film industry is hugely popular yes Right, so I could go to I could go to a small town or village in Somaliland, and someone would be playing an Indian song on the guitar. I have a video like that.
0: Wow, you know, so
1: the thing is we have we have exposure to that sort of stuff. Now, now film is neutral. Music is neutral. You know everyone yeah. can can get around that and Um, can appreciate that but you know if we're talking about a challenge to to values or a challenge to our culture then that becomes that becomes difficult
0: yeah it's um i mean you're you're 100 right that we've gone through the same thing in the more developed world but we've had some we've had some steps Along the way, my biggest fear for these guys is that they've gone from nothing to a lot of information and and with information comes these opinions and that's where it becomes more interesting and and I think that's where what what the space that you're sort of in here politically it becomes i mean we we saw it believe whatever you want or don't believe whatever you want from the documentaries we saw about trump and elections and social media manipulation and 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 these kind of things but there there has there's no everyone knows there's there's no smoke fire without smoke or smoke without fire you know there's something going on somewhere
1: it's it it it's hard to comment on these things right
0: because Uh,
1: you know ultimately as as a researcher we operate on evidence you know and um i think it's it's one of the benefits of of being in an academic environment you know and i th- i think a large part of a large part of progress in the next couple of decades will be should revolve around media literacy and how to really determine facts because you know there's this idea of you know you have your truth and i have my truth you know but i mean the world doesn't work like that because you know, otherwise, you know a hundred other people will keep will will talk about a hundred different truths. You know? yeah. so so there yeah. has to be there has to be an end to that sort of thing. But I think you know countries like like Finland, Estonia are doing a phenomenal job of of evolving their education curriculums in order yeah. to 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 meet the demand of modern times. And yeah um, i think media literacy is is certainly certainly one thing that that they need to focus on because um you know we need to operate we need to operate at that same level of fact right mm. you and i can have a debate about where you and i can have a debate about policy and whether this is mm. right at this time for this country that's fine but we have to operate at that same platform whether these are the set these are the facts that we've got in front of us and based on this we can have a debate but you know if if we're inherently questioning facts in itself then yeah and that <laughs> yeah. and it's 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 a challenge the world
0: over you know yeah yeah i'm sure yeah no i agree <laughs> so based based on that mate and based on what we've spoken about yeah. fast forward 3 years. What is your dream outcome of the 3 years that you're committing to this study? Like if if we said today like what what are some of the like what's almost your perfect scenario outcome? What do you hope to find or what would you wish to find through your research?
1: I I would like to I hope, fingers crossed, I hope that I'm able to find evidence For global health diplomacy being an effective tool for peace building, right? I hope that that's the outcome because I've I've been on the other side of that spectrum where I've gone and I've done research only to find that a particular intervention doesn't work. And it's it's important it's important to have that information as well because even knowing what doesn't work is progress. Yes, sure. That is progress, but. I guess in the world that we live in it's not advertised as such so yeah, right. yeah. Uh, so ideally it would be good to i think it would be great to be among those that has primary data on the efficacy of global health diplomacy um yeah. and uh, i really do hope it works you know but i think three years later hopefully i'm working at a think tank or something and I'm continuing to expand on the research that I've done and uh, hopefully work on a few new projects as well because you know, I, I don't see why, you know, I need to be limited to to what I'm doing right now.
0: Does, obviously, the the World Health Organization is in place to some, I'll put this quite loosely because you might correct me, but to somehow manage health in the world maybe cover off some of the issues that that we've been discussing or maybe some of the stuff that you're going to find out does and i know you're 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 quite nice. You, you play quite nicely uh, on on the political side which is good mate but does the world health organization welcome guys like you that are going out there to sort of have a look at what's going on, do some, and try and get some pretty independent research to drive things forward, or do they meet you with a a little bit of resistance?
1: Well, hopefully once I've got enough experience, I hope that they welcome you with open arms, but (laughs) we live in a competitive world, so I can only hope that that's the case. Um, With respect to politics, look, i've I've been in i've I've lived in Somaliland, where you know, it's you do have to be self-aware. You know, you can't go around walking the streets, you know, just you know, just I guess, wearing your political opinion on your sleeve. That's <laughs> you can't. You have to respect that environment and fair yeah, enough, for sure. So I'm happy to do that. I understand the importance of neutrality because, again, we don't live we don't live in a black and white world where mm. you know we have to we have to be committed to a larger outcome a larger objective and you know in you know and i think our commitment to the greater good has to supersede all of these these smaller arguments about you know about being sort of overtly political about certain things so I guess I'm perfectly fine with that. But I also know where my polit I know where my politics is and yeah. where I stand. So that's fine. I'm comfortable with that. I think I'm com- I'm comfortable with with my view. I'm also comfortable being wrong. So
0: yeah. That's
1: cool. I don't have a problem with that. And also I'm I'm a huge believer in in the idea of like healthy debate between, you know different individuals on the political spectrum that's perfectly fine i think that's good that's how you grow um, and right sure. now i think it's right now we're probably you know, at our lowest point <laughs> at our lowest point there because you know it's like if you you know if if you don't support a democrat it means you're a republican that's complete <laughs> nonsense you could also be you could also not support a democrat and not support a republican and just support an independent candidate
0: yeah so yeah exactly
1: you know so i don't think it's one or the other but having said that that's um that's a separate issue i know how to maintain my neutrality
0: (laughs) (laughs) you certainly do mate and it seems obviously you have some pretty good motivations so we'll we'll continue to think you're you're a good dude mate one final question i have is when you embark on on a study like, like this you said that to have what you're trying to prove prove the other way is actually a learning as well, which is a super open mindset. But do you have any other sort of? Do you have any natural fears of what might come in in the next few years? Maybe what you might find or or situa- any situation you might be in. Is there anything in the back of your mind that sort of makes you? I don't know. I don't know. If concerned is the word I'm looking for, but just any fears around. Your studies,
1: uh, yeah. I think you know, in, in research, you you want to make sure that your your method your methodologically tight. Mm. You know that you've that it's rigorous enough, and um, I think that's that's important to me, and I think it's important to this project as well because um, I do want to gather firsthand first hand empirical data you know like rich qualitative data yeah that that can be used i understand that over a period of time someone somewhere might build on that and that's perfectly okay um, but i do want to make sure that it's 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 a strong start uh, in that sense and um, yeah. Let's see how that goes, but it's tight, right? Like doing anything in a conflict area is, is challenging. And, uh, yeah. and when you have, when it comes with a PhD, there's, there are more, uh, I guess there are more obstacles in that sense, because, you know, you do have to get your, you do have to get your ethical clearance in both countries. And, um, and there's a certain process you need to follow. So that's fine. It lends credibility to the process. That's great. Um, but yeah, that's, I do have my Is it
0: <laughs> Does it, does work like this and, and, and a passion that's, that's your work as well. Does it become quite like almost all consuming? Do you, do you feel sometimes that you just, there's almost a thirst for, for more and what if this, what if that? And I don't know, I, I, feel, I feel that that's how it would be, mate. I feel that you could really, like, I'm excited for you. I'm excited to stay in touch and, and see how it goes, you know. And, and I literally spent an hour researching for, for the show. So is it, is it quite consuming? And how, how do you manage that?
1: I think it can be, but you also have to take your time off from it because, you know, you need to, I think as much input as your brain receives, you also need to give it some time to reflect on on the material that you've got. And mm. it's equally important to, to compare with other contexts. So for example, if I'm doing work on the DRC right now, mm. it is important for me to think about how, how Ebola was managed in Liberia or Sierra Leone or Guinea. Liberia mm. and Sierra Leone, qualify as post-conflict as post-conflict environments right right? so they're still sort of rebuilding from civil wars that took place in the late 90s and early 2000s yeah and as we saw during the Ebola outbreak their health infrastructure suffered enormously because Mm. they couldn't handle the rapid spread of Ebola so Mm. it is important to study those contexts as well even if they're even if they're quite different from the DRC which is an ongoing conflict Uh, Mm. or at least the eastern part is is an ongoing conflict Um, so yeah so I think that's that's important is it all consuming it can be I think the 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 point of a PhD is that like there aren't too many in the world right I think was it 1.8 percent of Americans had a PhD yeah so it's, it's, it's a small number of individuals that, that have a PhD. And, um, I think you, you need to be driven to, to ensure that, um, that it's, it's solid, you know, and it's built on um, a strong foundation.
0: Well, we, we know that you have one outlet. So here's a fun fact for the listeners. You, you are the host of a cricket podcast. So that's definitely I would imagine one of your outlets or, or one of your other passions
1: i I love cricket and um, actually it's my friend and brother Khaled mohidan in um, in South Africa who wow. who runs it. It's based out of South Africa and I try to I contribute to that as much as I can uh, whether it's through shows or through um, through my writing for the magazine sure. so yeah, I guess anyone who's interested in cricket should should definitely uh, have check a look. out Cricket Fanatics magazine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I have a I have a final 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 question for you, mate. No worries. Is it how do we, if people are interested in this, aside from going going and have a look at Google, is there any way that along the way that you document what you're finding or release any findings can can people i i saw that you you have a page on on Leeds university website what yeah. how does it go is there any commentary along the way or do we just sit here wait for 3 years and then i remember you in 3 years get you back on the show and say hey mate what did you actually find out what how does it go
1: <laughs> so i think the the final outcome of this research will be towards the end of that project but right um i think if you're looking at just other scientific material i was uh, i was a part of two papers that were published in november and december last year which which you can check out i'm happy to send you the links to them yeah, one was about cool. one was about covid misinformation and um <laughs> yeah so i think that might be of interest and um yeah and the other was about um uh, surveillance to detect um, outbreaks early.
0: So, wow. Wow. yeah, that was
1: an interesting one as well. So,
0: That's I cool. That I mean, if you yeah, if you send me those links, mate, I'll I'll put those here in in the show notes. But this has been. I really appreciate you taking taking the time to 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 chat and share what you're doing, mate. It's absolutely fascinating from a from a connection on Instagram Instagram and then when you when you told me what you're doing I was like I've got to get this guy on the podcast I think you're like I'm not sure what we're going to talk about but there we go we filled almost an hour and I mate, I it's so different from what I normally put on this show as well that hopefully people like it people are probably thinking Marcus what are you doing with your show you're supposed to talk about fitness but I think this all ties in it's health it's real it's the world it's political it's I mean, we, we were talking before, before we started recording, I was reading a book recently about polio vaccination in India. Go and check out World Health Organization website there. There's loads of literature on, on all of this stuff. When you, when you sort of, I guess it's like anything, when you go into a new arena, there's just, there's just papers absolutely everywhere and you can, you can really get, get into it. So, mate, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your insights. This has been really awesome. Thank you.
1: It was great to be here and it was a lovely conversation.